Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to Second uh, Samuel chapter 4. If you're new with us, we've been working our way through the book of Second Samuel, and we'll work all the way through it. Also, if you're new with us, you should know last week it was a uh, kind of a sermon, a uh, big picture sermon. What are we about at this church? So it's a great one if you want to go online and listen, if you're curious about who we think we are and what we think we're about here at Christ the Redeemer. That, that was the sermon last week out of Ephesians. So 2 Samuel chapter 4. Many of you know that my, uh, my, my parents have authored uh, many books and uh, but, but most of you probably don't know that their very first book was a little book called Liberating the Ministry from the Success Syndrome. And uh, it's one of my favorite books, uh, not only because my, my brother and I were actually there when they were writing it and contributing our, our comments, and some of them made them into the book. But um, this book came out of uh, my dad's, well, both of them, their struggle early on in ministry. Uh, my dad almost quit. He had gone to a seminary uh, during the church growth movement, and he'd learned all the newest principles for growing a church and uh, the marketing principles of visibility and accessibility and the sociological principles, the homogeneous unit principle where you go after people that are uh, in a like group. Maybe they have a like you know, political view or something like that, and you, you work after that group. He did the demographic studies. He built a, a nice... Uh, building in a strategic location and went to work. And after a couple years, he was failing. His church wasn't growing, and he was really struggling. And he began to doubt God and get depressed because he felt God had called him to do something that he wasn't equipped to do, and he wanted to give up. And, uh, but my mom at that time told him just to hold on to her faith because she was sure God was good. And, uh, and they decided to go through the Bible and look and see what the scriptures say about what it means to be a success in ministry, to grow, to, for God to grow his church, and what it means to be a success at that. And uh, it was very liberating and joyous. And they say that little book has had more ministry than they think than all their other books together. And I bring this up because thus far, in 2 Samuel, the growth of David's kingdom, God's kingdom work in the world, his ministry, so to speak, has been very slow and painful. David has only had, since he's been anointed as king, he's only had one tribe of the 11 tribes go with him and follow him. And the cities of his whole kingdom are filled with the enemies, are filled with Philistines. And it's five, been five years on, and there hasn't been much progress. He's had a couple babies, but that's about it. And during this time, David's men keep turning to the ways of man to try to make it happen, to try to make his kingdom a success. They've turned to political and, and brutal military force. They've engaged in unrighteous and conduct and underhanded ways. And, and, and they're all about kind of opportunistic maneuvering, really to their own glory. And all of it's been in the name of God. 
in the name of advancing his kingdom. It's been very spiritualized. And of course, none of it really worked because you can't actually build God's righteous kingdom with unrighteous means. And thus far, if you've been with us, you've, you've seen that David has stood pretty strong, refusing to be part of their sinful ways. He's, he's really separated himself from his own men and their actions. And he's been waiting on and trusting God. But the temptation is always there. And, and it, is, it is there today as well to, to compromise when things aren't going well even for the work of the church or the work of the kingdom. As a church, as we, as, as, as we struggle and even maybe shrink a little, it's tempting, isn't it, to let pragmatic business principles drive our strategies and programs rather than the gospel? It's tempting to cater to people's consumeristic tendencies to grow numbers. It's tempting to favor the person of means because of what they could mean having them here for the bottom line of the church. It's favor to make a popular political maybe agenda the center of what we're about because it's popular with our demographic and it'll draw a crowd. And we can do it all in the name of stewardship and advancing the kingdom work. And as individual believers... When life isn't going our way and we aren't prospering as we hoped, the temptation can be to, to twist the gospel message just a little bit so it's more about my blessing and empowerment than it is about Jesus' glory. Or to spiritualize materialistic gain as a sign of God's favor and thus justify making it the center of my pursuits in my life. Or conversely, to, to start doubting God's ways and not trusting him. To lean on the ways of man. To put our hope maybe in, 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 in some leader rather than in Christ himself. It's so easy to compromise and sort of spiritualize those compromises. Now today's text is, is really helpful, I think, when it comes to this because again... David will face the temptation to bend to the ways of men to, to, to grab a hold of success. But he will stand strong, and we will see two strong kind of core beliefs that David will hold on to to anchor him in the face of such temptation. Uh, great lessons for us. And, and we're going to kind of get to them towards the end of the text. We're going to work our way through the story and see what we come to. So let's, let's start with verse 1. This is how our text starts. It says, When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Ishbosheth, if you remember, is the puppet king who was set up by Saul's main commander, Abner, after Saul's death. Abner managed to convince 11 of the tribes to follow Saul's son, Ishbosheth. He sort of took Ishbosheth, who probably just kind of went along for the ride, and said, Here, follow him. And he set it up as a rival kingdom to David's 
who's the rightful anointed king. He decided, and and, uh, many of those tribes went over there with him. But soon into this, well, a couple years in, Ispasheth gets upset with Abner about some things that were going on. And Abner decides to defect over to David, and he's going to take all those tribes with him. And uh, we find out, though, that as he goes and he begins to negotiate with David, and they seem to make a peace, David's commander, Joab, murders Abner out of vengeance, out of revenge for Abner having killed his son. And that's where we left off the story. There was almost a peace negotiated. He had almost defected over and got the tribes to go, and then he's murdered. And it says here, Ishbosheth, we come into the story now, Ishbosheth just heard of Abner's murder, and it says his courage failed. The actual Hebrew is that he, uh, his, his hands went slack. He lost his grip. The guy is terrified. You see, not only is Abner, the power man that was behind him, not only had he gone to defect, but now he's been murdered by David. And what does this mean? Was, was David behind it? Well, he wasn't murdered by David, he was murdered by Joab. But is he thinking, is David behind this? He went over to David and now he's murdered? He doesn't know. Is this a signal that David is on the attack? And how many of his people that were defecting across have actually defected? It's not good, and he is terrified. But this first verse also tells us that Israel, all of Israel, all those tribes people, they are dismayed. And it's the idea of terrified. Yes, they know that Abner was in the midst of negotiating a peace with David and bringing them under his leadership. And, and they were supposed to defect over. But then suddenly they hear that Abner has been killed and their king, Ispasheth, has is losing his grip? What does this all mean? Are they going to be at war and not really have a king to lead them? Did David think their promised defection was a trick and now he's out for their blood? So they are terrified. Things don't look good at this point for the kingdom of Ishbosheth. He and his All his people are quaking in their sandals. But then there is a glimmer of hope in verse 2. We are told that Ishbosheth has two men, two strong leaders left. Look at verse 2 with me. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Baana. And the name of the other was Rechab, son of Remen, a man of Benjamin from Bereth. For Bereth also was counted part of Benjamin. The Berethites fled to get him and have been sojourners there to this day. Banna and Rechab, they are maybe the last hope. They are captains of raiding bands, tough, ruthless, tested battle-tested guys. And on top of this, he, he kind of tells us here that they have bloodlines that are tied to the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe. So they're the next best thing to an actual heir to the throne. 
and they are warriors. They could be the answer. And the writer here, he, he kind of confirms that they really are Ispasheth's and his kingdom's best and last hope by informing us in verse 4, this little insert, you wonder why it's in here, this part of, about Mephibosheth, uh, however you say his name, Mephibosheth. <laughs> he tells us, hey, yes, there is one grandson of Saul that is a possible heir, but by the way, when you add up the, the timing here, because it's five years in, he's only about 10 to 12 years old, and he's a cripple. He's an invalid. Sabana and Rechab really are the last hope. What will they do? Well, look at verse 5 and let's read about it. Now the sons of Rimmon, the, Bareth, the Barathite, Rechab and Banna, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking a noonday rest. And they came in the midst of the house as if to get wheat. Now stop right there. So, so far, these two guys head out. It's about a day's trip. They head down. They get to Ishbosheth's place, middle of the day, as if to get wheat. Apparently, this is where they stored the, the supplies. They're there to get supplies for their men. Nothing suspicious about this. They're able to go right into the house. And then we read, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Wow. It's a little bit of a twist. They don't seem like such the hope anymore. And in verse, uh, in verse 7, he goes into, he kind of zooms in on this moment and goes into the details. It says, they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, and they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went the way of Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. Apparently, they kind of saw the writing on the wall that Saul's house was going down with Ishbosheth. And they, they saw the opportunity to not only save themselves, but come to David as heroes and bring him the head of his rival enemy king. It's a smart move. Abandon the sinking ship. Get in good with the, the new king by proving your usefulness as tough guys, all in one deft, ruthless move. And it seems to have gone without a hitch. They easily kill Ishbosheth in the heat of the day, and it says they make a clean escape. They travel back through the night to Hebron. They present David with his head as proof of their loyalty. But I want us to note two things here. First, note how they spiritualize their utter wickedness. There is nothing good or righteous or even justifiable in their murderous actions, is there? I mean, we understood a little when, when Abner killed Esahel uh, in the midst of battle. It was a terrible thing, but we could say, well, he was defending himself. 
And we kind of understood the, the twisted and emotional reasoning behind Joab's revenge murder on Abner for killing his little brother. But what did Ishbosheth do? David, in verse 11, even calls Ishbosheth righteous. The idea is that, that he's innocent. He had done nothing to deserve being slaughtered in his bed. These guys did not do anything even close to heroic in killing Ishbosheth. And they didn't do it for David, did they? It was just ruthless, cowardice, and self preservation. One commentator even points out that there's a lot of mocking sarcasm employed by the Hebrew writer here in, in the way he writes to demonstrate the cowardice of these two guys. Even when he gives them the title of captains of raiding bands, the only other people given that title ever are Amalekite raiding bands. They hated Amalekites, and if you know a lot about them, they were not good people. It's not a favorable title. And he stresses that their qualifications are just above that of a crippled 12-year-old. And then he repeats and kind of zooms in about how they snuck in and killed this guy as he slept in his bed. It's like repeating over and over again that you shot someone in the back. It's not a compliment. He's signaling to the reader what cowardice scumbags these guys are and how absolutely evil their actions are. Yet, these guys, as they recount their actions to David actually claim to be doing the work of the Lord. In fact, they be claimed to be doing his saving work. The Lord, they say, has avenged my Lord the King. That's what they say about their actions. Through them, the Lord has saved you. He's taken out his enemy. What wonderful servants of God they are. Loyal servants of David, his king. It's so ugly, this twisted spiritualization of self-serving evil. But if you think about it, it's very real, isn't it? We all do this. Maybe not to justify murderous butchery. <laughs> But we spiritualize wicked selfishness in our lives. We theologize it into some pseudo-godly justification. Think of the, the church leader who reallocates church mission funds to prop up his book sales so as to make the bestsellers list, all in the name of getting the message out there to the masses. Think of the top-tier evangelist who uses women to give him relief so he can deal with the stress of ministry. Think of uh, church outreach strategies that decide to nix words like sin and judgment because they're so negative and focus on blessing and prosperity so as to reach more people with the gospel. Think of Christians who live their whole lives in pursuit of materialistic gain and worldly success, but it's justified in the name of God's blessing them. Think of the way we all tend to justify our sinful hatreds and biases in the name of righteousness, righteous indignation. 
those so-and-sos are ruining our society for it. So, so it's okay for me to call them names and have no compassion for them. Think of the way it's easy to justify our lack of evangelistic effort in the name of trying to keep pure from the world or that's not really my gifting. It sounds so spiritual, all of it. Think of your own life. How do you do it? How do you justify and even spiritualize what is just clearly wrong? Whatever it is, know this. Just as we can see as plain as day that Banna and, and Rechab are, are, are so evil in this, that they aren't fooling anybody. It's so obvious when we read the text. Just as we can see it that clearly, God can see it in us. He's not fooled, even if we're fooling ourselves. And you know, others probably see it. If you're wondering about yourself, asking that question, ask somebody close to you how you spiritualize or certain things, and then try to listen. But I think the bigger emphasis here is on David's response to them. I mean, what's the temptation for David here? As they come and say to him, the Lord has avenged my Lord and King. He, 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 he has put down Saul, your enemy, his house. He's finally done it through us, of course, but he has finally completed his promise and saved you, David. What's David's temptation? To believe them. To look past their wickedness and underhanded ways and cunning and accept the flattery. To accept their actions as the work of the Lord for him. To likewise spiritualize this as the Lord's provision. I mean, this is what he's been praying for. And the day has finally come. Success. God has flourished his kingdom. God has blessed his ministry. And now he has these new loyal servants who are clearly all in. They are calling him Lord and King, and they have brought him his enemy's head. It's done. Wow. Finally, success. Call in the people and celebrate. You know... He just wants to absorb this. this, all this spiritualization, all this flattery, that's what you would want. My dad, who was a pastor for many years, if you don't know, uh, always warned me as a pastor to beware of the flatterer. That person or couple that comes into church and tells you how great you are. You are such an anointed servant of the Lord. Your preaching is so anointed. Unlike, unlike the pastor of their last church. He was one of those seeker-friendly guys. He didn't teach the word, not like you. You're so anointed. The Lord has blessed your ministry. My dad says, watch out. When they come in with my Lord and King lingo and they bring you the head of the last guy. It's a bad sign. But thankfully, we're going to see that David 
doesn't bite. He sees right through them. And what keeps him from going there? What keeps him from biting on this? From you would think everything would be, ah, do this. What keeps him from compromising and receiving their acclamation and support as the Lord's redemption? Well, let's look at his answer in verses 9 through 11. We're going to see two things, two things David remembers that keep him strong and keep him from compromise. Look at verse 9. I'll get my glasses on here to read it. But David answered Rechab and Banna, his brother, the sons of Remen, the Barathite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversary, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. You see, David remembers two things here. He remembers his redemption and he remembers God's judgment. The first thing he says is, as the Lord lives who has redeemed me from every adversary. He looks at those guys and says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed me from every adversary. David, we want to save you. We've saved you from your enemy. And he says, no, the Lord has saved me from every adversary. You're not my savers. You're not my redeemers. The Lord is. And by the way, he's already saved me from everything. And of course, David, he could, he could list them off, right? He could talk about how God saved him from the paw of the lion and, and the bear and how God saved him from the giant spear of Goliath and how God kept him from the 11 murder attempts of Saul. But the point is, he knows God as he lives has already redeemed him from everything, every adversary, and he will trust him. He didn't need to go after Saul and act in some unrighteous way to secure his kingdom. He knew his living Redeemer God had it covered in his way and in his time. He didn't need to compromise with the wicked ways of those cowardly men to finally have success against Ishbosheth and the house of Saul. God, as he lives, has redeemed him from every adversary. He's redeemed his life. His redemption is complete. He is a living redeemer. My friends, if we want to stay away from compromise, if we want to keep from spiritualizing wickedness as a means of, in a sense, saving ourselves or redeeming our, our hard circumstances, we need to remember our finished redemption, our full, complete redemption in Christ, our Redeemer who lives. There is no adversary 
There's no adversity that can come into our lives that is outside his redemption. We are completely saved, by the way. You can say, you know, oh no, the, the church is struggling. My ministry seems like a failure. Maybe we should take some, some, some worldly business practices to shore things up and, and contour the message of the gospel to be more plausible to save the church. No, God's church is already saved, already redeemed. He did it at the cross. Oh no, things are falling apart in, in, in my culture all, all around me. Maybe I should glom on to some human leader who promises to fix things, put my hope in them, make them my functional savior. No. I've been redeemed. My redeemer lives. Oh no, I'm I've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Now remember, redeemed from every adversity. Even death. My friends, are we remembering our redemption? Are we remembering our, 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 our living Redeemer? It really is the antidote for, for compromise and spiritualized sin. It's the antidote to, to believing in false saviors. That's what these guys are when they show up for David. They claim to be bringing his salvation. For him to go after them, to believe them, is just idolatry. But David stands strong. He remembers who is his redeemer, his full redemption. But he also remembers one more thing. He remembers judgment, doesn't he? After reminding these guys about what he did to the man who claimed to kill Saul... And who brought it to David as good news, the man who laid his hands on God's anointed. He reminds him what he did to him. And then he says this in verse 11 and 12. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his house on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hands and destroy you from the earth? And, of course, he went on to talk about cutting off their hands and their feet. You see, this gentle king of grace who refuses to act in sinful violence to secure his kingdom is a king of justice who will punish wickedness. And you may think the cutting off in the hands and the feet and hanging them was a bit much, but it's actually a symbolic message that these men's actions, their hands and their feet actions, are not his actions. Many people in the kingdom may have thought that David was behind Ispeset's brutal assassination, or at least condone it because it worked to his favor, and he wants them to know, he sends this out as a message, he wants them to know that Rechab and Bana's ways, their underhanded and wicked ways although spiritualized as godly, are not his ways. And he is not with Bana and Rechab. They are not with him. It reminds me of Jesus explaining to his disciples in Matthew 
5, that many will come saying, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that, we did this in your name. Spiritualizing their actions. And he will respond, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They're doing lawless deeds. And they're saying, we did them in your name. You see, David, as God's uncompromising king, reminds us that as God's people, we have been fully redeemed. And we have real justice. Real justice is coming. And if you're not sure about that, if you're thinking, well, how do we know that? Look at the cross where we get our redemption and the very justice of God in the same moment. And that's being worked out in our lives now, and he will bring it to completion. It's being worked out in one person, the person of Christ. It's been done at the cross, and we need to trust him. Let's never compromise righteousness even if it seems to bring some gain or to save us in the moment, even if it holds the promise of success for some Christian effort, let's never spiritualize sinful, underhanded ways as a means to kingdom success in the church and in our lives. Let's trust our Savior, our Redeemer, and our King. Jesus, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for these stories, even if they're graphic, in that you grab our attention. You show us in these real-life demonstrations spiritual truths about ourselves and our tendencies and the danger of compromising and justifying it with spiritual language. Lord, help us to see through that in this church, to see through it in our lives, and to trust your son, his timing, and his ways as you build your kingdom in us and through us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.